Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for February 21st, 2022. Here's today's rundown. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is promising what they describe as significant enforcement if providers have not complied with rules surrounding the Provider Relief Fund. We'll have an exclusive report from healthcare attorney Andrew Walkler. Last week, the Senate passed a short-term spending bill extending government funding until March 11th that gives lawmakers three weeks to strike a deal on a year-long omnibus spending package. Monitor Monday's legislative analyst, Matthew Albright, has details. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have much news to report and begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's start today with some Medicare Advantage news. The retired municipal workers in New York City are up in arms they're being forced to switch to a Medicare Advantage plan for the retirement health care or pay an extra $191 a month to stay with traditional Medicare. Now, many of these people in New York City have been receiving care from prestigious institutions like Memorial Sloan Kettering, and they're now being told their care will not be covered since that system is out of network. And if anything is true about the stereotype about union workers in New York City, you really don't want to get them mad. Now, we also received word that Mayo Clinic will no longer see patients who are covered by a Medicare Advantage plan that is not in their network, most notably United Healthcare, which also happens to be based in Minnesota. And the OIG released another audit of another MA plan's HCC coding, and they found a 73% error rate. Maybe, just maybe, word is getting out that MA plans are not all that they claim to be. Hospices were also in the news last week and not in a good way. The OIG report was done and it looked at 10 years of claims and found some disturbing numbers. They noted a large increase in the number of for-profit hospices, but what seemed to concern them the most was the increase in Part B spending on patients enrolled with for-profit hospices and had Part B services and DME that was carved out of the hospice benefit paid separately by Medicare because the services were reported as unrelated to the patient's terminal illness. This is a way for the hospices to avoid spending part of their um, capitated amount and shifting it to Medicare. Now the OIG has promised more audits to come of this issue. Finally, there was an interesting case posted on one of the user groups that I follow. A case management director posted this. We are having challenges with one of our insurers, not United Healthcare, that denies every inpatient stay if the patient is here for less than three midnights. Example, patient admitted with respiratory failure with hypoxia and placed on BiPAP. We discharged her on day three. Peer-to-peer attempted, but the payer medical director would not even discuss the case, citing their short-stay policy. Wow. Well, amazingly, I was able to find that payer's policy online, and sure enough, it states 
It is our policy that inpatient hospital stays on day three and beyond are medically necessary when supported by nationally recognized clinical decision support tools. The only exceptions are inpatient-only surgeries, patients admitted to an intensive care unit who met criteria for ICU admission, and patients whose length of stay was shorter because they died or transferred or left AMA, as long as they met inpatient criteria during their hospital stay. So what's happened here? Well, this hospital has a contract with this payer, and the contract holds them to the plan's published policies. Someone at the hospital signed it, so everyone has to abide by it. We hear this happening over and over again. Now, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but in case any of you missed my previous sermon, get your physician advisor and case management staff at the contract table. And when cases like this get denied, it's a loss on every report to the CFO. They sign the contract. They own the consequences. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's the risk that I'm going to miss something new. So a few weeks ago, I did my segment on Medicare's signature requirements. Well, I'm fortunate enough to have really smart clients, and a new client sent me two documents that I was completely unaware of. So first, thanks, Lori, for making me smarter. So while neither of these documents changed my analysis, I want to discuss them because there are a number, number of important lessons to learn, including the importance of sometimes dismissing Medicare documents. So. The first lesson is the obvious one. The regulatory framework is constantly changing. Never assume that you know all of the rules, even if you study them carefully. So the first document has actually been around for almost a year. It's Medicare Learning Network 905-364. That's 905-364. So I'm not sure I should give you the number because it's pretty crummy. So it came out in March of 2021. So the document contains the following gem of a paragraph. It's entitled Medicare Signature Requirements. Documentation must meet Medicare's signature requirements. Medicare claims reviewers look for a signed and dated medical documentation meeting Medicare's signature requirements. If entries aren't signed and dated, they may deny the associated claims. Now talk about a circular paragraph. The signature requirements are that you have to follow the signature requirements. I mean, I, I can't dispute that, but it's the sort of argument you might get from a four-year-old. What are the requirements? Well, that document doesn't say. It does have a variety of arbitrarily made-up declarations, like you can't add late signatures to orders or medical records beyond the short delay that happens during the transcription process. Well, that's just facially untrue. I can add a late signature. If their point is they won't accept one, that's fine, but they better have some authority to point to. Is there some regulation that says signatures must occur within X hours? I think not. So who's deciding what a late signature is? The end of this basically authoritative list document cites to two resources, Medicare Program Integrity Manual, Chapter 3, Section 3.3.2.4, and then another MLN Matters. So the section in the Program Integrity Manual is the second new document that Lori taught me about. It was implemented in November of 2021, so it's quite new. 
The manual section says that for medical review purposes, Medicare requires that services provided, ordered, certified, be authenticated by the persons responsible for the care of the beneficiary in accordance with Medicare policies. But I've said this before, and I will say it again. The Medicare manuals are not binding. They need to be based on something in a statute or a regulation. And there is not a statute or regulation that I know of requiring the signature as a condition of payment. We mentioned that there can be conditions of participation, but I don't know about one that's a condition of payment. But let me emphasize that even this off-the-wall manual provision indicates that when the contractor finds a signature is deficient, they're supposed to contact the organization and give them 20 days to submit an attestation. To sum up, I was not aware of the new language added in November, but manual language can't change the legal analysis. It merely offers insight into what the government thinks. And in this case, the government thinks that if a medical record is unsigned, the government can ask for an attestation. So Chuck, I probably should be doing a song from the dead presidents today, but alas, I don't know any of their music. And when I read the citationless MLN matters and its attempt to baselessly justify claims that there are signature requirements in the Medicare program, I found myself thinking of the Alan Parsons project. Games people play. If I'm telling you the truth right now, do you believe it? Games people play in the middle of the night. Back to you and happy President's Day. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Coming up next, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, and our special guest healthcare attorney, Andrew Walker. Mr. Walker is standing by to report our lead story this morning, significant enforcement coming to providers. It's President's Day. It's Monday, February 21st, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, the results of their latest physician advisor survey, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, Chuck, and happy President's Day, everyone. Today, I'd like to dedicate my segment to honor and recognize Black History Month. 
The significance of February as Black History Month stems from Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who in 1926 started Negro History Week. Through his founding organization, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, we know it as ASALH. Although regularly celebrated throughout African American communities, it was not until 1986, the first year we celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, that Black History Month was passed by House and Senate with the designation of the month of February as National Black History Month. This, that year, Presidential Proclamation 5443 noted that the foremost purpose of Black History Month is to make all Americans aware of this struggle for freedom and equal opportunity. Each year, the ASALH focuses on a priority for celebration and recognition. This year, they selected the theme of Black health and wellness. This theme pays tribute to the legacy and role of Black scholars and medical practitioners that have contributed to improving health outcomes, such as Dr. James McCune Smith, the first African-American physician to earn a medical degree in 1837, or in 1879, when Mary Eliza Mahoney became the first African-American professional nurse. This month, we recognize medical and nursing schools that have paved the way for many professionals in our healthcare field, such as Meharry Medical College, Howard University College of Medicine, and Provident Hospital and Training School, to name a few. Although our history has progressed, we must acknowledge the deplorable conditions and treatment of the past. When African Americans were unable to obtain medical care for hospitals or clinics serving whites, who served as test patients for medical treatment for cancer, polio, and syphilis. The health disparities of black communities are overwhelming as they continue to deal with the lack of accessible health care with impactful statistics related to the higher percentages of African Americans who have died from COVID-19, cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. And in 2018, the rates of suicide for black children ages five to 12 exceeded that of white children. So, this February, ASALH requests our healthcare partners and communities to focus on the physical and mental health and wellness of African Americans to not only provide access to medical care, but also offer holistic preventative care and healing. So my question for today's listeners, is your hospital or health system celebrating and recognizing Black History Month? Yes, no, does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And as Tiffany said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. And up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, last week we reported on the lawsuits related to the No Surprises Act that are focused on the Biden administration's current policy on the amount that providers should be reimbursed for certain emergency and non-emergency out-of-network services. As mentioned last week, we should get a sense of what the court feels about those lawsuits in the next week or so, as briefings have wrapped up in two of those four lawsuits. Again, these four lawsuits are only narrowly focused 
on what the provider should be reimbursed for for the particular out-of-network claims outlined in the No Surprises Act. This week, however, we'll talk about another lawsuit related to the No Surprises Act brought by a Dr. Daniel Holler and Long Island Surgical. This New York lawsuit filed on New Year's Eve, the day before the No Surprises Act took effect, seeks to overturn the whole principle behind the No Surprises Act. That is, the Holler lawsuit seeks to repeal the prohibition on balance billing patients for certain out-of-network services. So far, no court activity has happened on this Holler lawsuit. The plaintiffs have not served the government with the lawsuit yet, but let's put a pin in that for now and wait we'll to see if this case gets any traction in the months to come. Before we leave the No Surprises Act lawsuits, listeners may recall that so far, the regulations implementing the act have been interim final rules. With interim final rules, the government has the ability to publish final rules that skip over a proposed rule in which the requirements are proposed and can be changed based on public comment. This means that the two regulations published as interim final rules that the government put out on the No Surprises last year are final final rules. And there's no requirement that the government publish another, let's call it a final final rule, based on any public comments from the public. In fact, this is an issue that the lawsuits have brought up. They argue that the government should have published a proposed comment rule put out for comments uh, for such a significant piece of legislation. That being said, in a motion filed in one of the NSA lawsuits, the Biden administration says that it will issue a final, final, no surprises act rule no later than May of this year. And that rule, which could roll up the requirements proposed in the first two interim final rules, will be published no later than May 2022. And before we leave the No Surprises Act, the next CMS Special Open Door Forum for Providers will be held this Wednesday, February 23rd, 2 to 3 Eastern Time. This CMS session will provide information for providers on those balance billing disclosure requirements, continuing care for patients after a plan terminates the provider's contract, and some information on the provider's role in keeping their information in provider directories accurate. Moving more locally, states are quickly dropping their mask mandates, or in the least, setting dates in the coming weeks when those mandates will be lifted. The only state that has not planned to lift its mask mandate now is Hawaii. And as David Glazer discussed before the show today, states are dropping their mandates in response to the dramatic decrease in cases across much, but maybe not all, of the country. Last week, a health fair study of nearly 400 counties in the U.S. found that COVID incidents in counties that mandated masks declined by nearly a quarter compared to counties without mask mandates. For counties with larger cities, the incidence of COVID declined by nearly 30% in masked counties compared with unmasked counties. So Chuck, although mandates are disappearing, it is clear that the mask mandates significantly dis- decreased the number of people with COVID. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey once again. Here's Tiffany Ferguson. Thanks, Chuck. So today I was asking if your hospital or health care system was celebrating and recognizing Black History Month. I am, with a good sigh of relief, glad to report that 66% of our listeners today said yes, they are celebrating Black History Month uh, this February. About 10% said it does not apply. And the remainder was no. Back to you, Chuck.
Thanks, Timothy, very much. Uh, Thanks for the survey and thanks for those results. And coming up, an exclusive report on what the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is threatening significant enforcement on providers. That story is coming up next. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. If your organization has been audited by a Medicare Advantage organization, you are faced with a serious question. Should you challenge the audit? If so, do you have the right defense? Under pressure from CMS, Medicare Advantage organizations have become more aggressive in their provider audits. They're looking for program non-compliance, potentially even fraud and abuse. But the fact is many audit findings are simply wrong, so you must be prepared to fight back. MacMonitor presents crucially important webcast on Medicare Advantage audits featuring healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. This webcast is tomorrow, Tuesday, February 22nd, so register now to attend Medicare Advantage Audits, Mounting an Effective Defense. Again, the webcast is Medicare Advantage Audits, Mounting an Effective Defense. Register now to learn how to win and hold on to payments that are rightfully yours. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is threatening significant enforcement on providers. What providers and why? Well, here now to fill in the blanks is healthcare attorney Andrew Walker. Good morning, Drew. Hey, this is a big story, a lot of money involved. What's going on here? Well, Chuck, um, uh, they uh, have a, the Department of Health and Human Services has announced an additional round of audits of healthcare providers. Uh, the amount of money involved is $178 billion with regard to the Provider Relief Fund. And there are significant um, attestations that providers made with regard to the terms and conditions of uh, the utilization of these uh, funds. Some of them, the general ones, uh, relate to uh, only used for healthcare-related expenses, lost revenues, to file reports demonstrating compliance with conditions of payment. And providers who have not complied uh, with these requirements can be subject to recoupment penalty, including liability under false claims uh, when you make an attestation. Yeah, the enforcement uh, agencies are CMS. There's a special inspector general for pandemic recovery that's looking at high volume um, loans and grants and high risk areas, the OIG and uh, DOJ. So let's look at particularly uh, what this area uh, is uh, looking at. And uh, like I said, I believe it's the tip of the iceberg. We're going to see uh, a lot more of these audits. So uh, it's interesting we had a presentation with regard to surprise billing because this audit is whether uh, providers, actually this audit is whether hospitals complied with the uh, surprise billing provisions of the Provider Relief Fund terms and conditions subject to an attestation that they would. The uh, requirement applies to all providers, but this audit is focusing on hospital providers, uh, presumably uh, inpatient services. So uh, when these funds were distributed, there was an agreement that for the care of presumptive or actual COVID-19 patients, providers will not seek to collect from the patient out-of-pocket expenses in an amount greater 
than what the patient would have otherwise been required to pay if the care had been provided by an in-network provider. This audit uh, focuses on hospitals' providers' compliance with this balance billing requirement, and they've indicated they'll place additional assessment on how providers calculated their bills for patients that were admitted to COVID uh, to the hospital for COVID-19 uh, treatment. Now, remember, the requirements are not limited to admissions, but the focus of this uh, may be uh, for admissions. And so this will be um, uh, where they're looking. Uh, the recoupment could be uh, the amount of the uh, hospital uh, billings if there was not compliance. Um, be aware that the term COVID patients, presumptive or actual, is different than the beginning of the provider relief fund, which said all patients are COVID. This is really uh, focusing on uh, COVID patients. And there is exposure under civil false claims when you utilize an attestation. Uh, I raise this question. Uh, can hospitals cure this by doing a, a review, internal review, and if they did charge more, uh, return those funds uh, to the um, out-of-network um, patient. Um, if you do a review uh, and then you don't turn those funds and you know they could be overpayments, then you, ex you may increase exposure. But if you do return the funds, I just uh, raise the issue whether you could avoid uh, the consequences of these audits. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Drew, very much. That was Andrew Walker. Mr. Walker is a managing partner at Walker & Associates in Royal Oaks, Michigan. And for more information, be sure to read his reporting on this major action in Rack Monitor. Now it's time for our Monday Q&A. David, let's answer some of the questions we've been receiving. You bet. So Deborah just wants a quick check on, hey, what was that program integrity manual section again? So it's Chapter 3. Section 3.3.2.4, but remember, it's only a manual. Um, Bruce asks a really good question that highlights sort of the complexity of talking about signatures and orders and the like. So he asks, hey, what gets more weight? The 2019 inpatient prospective payment missing or defective order language or the material that I was talking about in my segment? And What's going on here is there are sort of different slices, right? So in 2019, CMS said, if, you, if you're missing an order, an admission order, they created the possibility of the contractor saying a missing order doesn't automatically result in a denial. Now, this is really interesting because there is a requirement in the two midnight rule for an admission order. Um, it's, it's sort of an exception to the general rule uh, that you don't necessarily um, need orders for things. It, it is There is a clear regulatory requirement that you have an admission order in writing from the admitting physician. But as Bruce points out, in 2019, CMS created some flexibility for that. But that's really a different kettle of fish. Um, and so it's it's sort of a different set of orders. And so I would say they have different, they're, they're very different, but the 2019 information was in the Federal Register, so it would be higher on the regulatory hierarchy, but it's also dealing with a slightly different question. Matthew, I got a question for you here. Um, you, 
you know, you were talking about this litigation out of Long Island. Thank you. I did not know about that. Are you aware of any other litigation that challenges the entirety of the No Surprises Act? There's lots of litigation challenging the calculation of the qualified payment amount, but do you know of anything that would, you know, undo the uh, requirement to give a good faith estimate or the requirement to give the disclosure and things like that? I don't actually. Um, to my knowledge, there's no other lawsuits out there. There's the Holler one, and even the Holler one is just focused narrowly on the uh, prohibition on surprise on balance billing the patient. So they'd like to see um, the ability to balance bill the patient. And then, like you said, the other lawsuits are focused mostly on the reimbursement to the provider. And and I think you point out something uh, um, that needs emphasizing, which we talked about on the show a number of times. With that good faith estimate, actually applies to a, a just about every provider out there, and there are no lawsuits pushing back on there. Uh, tremendous burden for all of the providers, uh, really, compared to some of these other No Surprises Act provisions that are talked about in the lawsuits, which are really just about a small segment of the claims they're putting out there. So, um, to my knowledge, no other lawsuits are pushing back on some of the more uh, some of the more burdensome, I think, provisions of the No Surprises Act. Thanks, Matthew. And then one final point from Dr. Hirsch that he made in chat, which is just really astute. So he was noting that you know medical staff rules often require signatures on things like verbal orders and stuff like that, um, and and just highlighting the point that just because there's a medical staff requirement, that isn't necessarily the same as a Medicare requirement. And so you might get in trouble with your medical staff if you don't sign something. The hospital might have a conditions of participation issue, but that is different from whether or not there's a Medicare overpayment. Chuck, I think that wraps up our questions. I will turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That does wrap up this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hurst, and healthcare attorney Andrew Walker, who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday in Iraq Monitor. Those of you who are working today on President's Day, have a great week. We'll see you next Monday. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.